I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Vessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. And I'm here today with my partner in crime or otherwise, Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Sharon. How are you? I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm part of the ANU Medical School. I'm also the Human Futures Fellow for the College of Health and Medicine here at ANU. It is great to see you again, Anna Greta, after the long Christmas break. Mm, Nice to be back. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. The Crawford School is Asia-Pacific's leading graduate public policy school. If you're interested in learning more about our courses, both degree programs and the executive short courses that we offer, check out what we have at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And welcome back to all our listeners for this very first episode of 2021. And it is great to be here again, Sharon. It's really nice to see you. I hope you've had a good break. Um, I know for me, I felt like we had a summer this time and it was nice to have a few moments downtime and to rest and recover. Um, and I found myself exploring and thinking a lot about the issues that we started to work on at the end of last year. Over the last couple of months of 2020, here at Policy Forum Pod, we were exploring wellbeing economics in response to the challenges of 2020. We spoke with a range of experts in complex problems like climate change and global development, health and community engagement. We were absolutely delighted to present this series of conversations and I still recommend exploring that series of podcasts. I've listened to a few again over the summer break myself. Indigenous solutions to our complex challenges were mentioned in quite a few points in the last couple of series, but deep understanding and learning from First Nations perspectives really comes when we listen to their voices. With this in mind, Policy Forum Pod will open this year with a series of discussions from Indigenous thinkers and leaders. The central question remains well-being of people, environment, society and culture, but we have so much to learn through the perspective of our Indigenous thinkers. So today we want to ask what can policymakers learn from Indigenous knowledge of country, from the environment, and what impact would better policy in this area have on the well-being of Indigenous Australians and perhaps on the nation more broadly? 
So today we have an outstanding guest joining us um, as we talk through some of these issues. We are joined by Dr. Virginia Marshall. Virginia, welcome. Yes, Yiridu Narin in Wiradjuri. Hi. It is wonderful to have you here. I think many of our listeners will know you well. Um, Virginia has been on the pod a number of times in the past and has also been on our sibling program, Democracy Sausage. Virginia is inaugural Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow with the ANU's School of Regulation and Global Governance, or REGNET, um, and also with the Fenner School of Environment and Society. Virginia is a practising lawyer and duty solicitor. She is a former associate and researcher with the Federal Court of Australia in Sydney. She is a professional member of the New South Wales Law Society and the Women Lawyers Association of New South Wales. Virginia does a lot more as well um, and I think is is the perfect person to start this conversation that we're about to have over the next couple of weeks around how we can think differently about well-being from an Indigenous perspective. Virginia, as many of our listeners will know, is a Wiradjuri Niemba woman from New South Wales. So, well, welcome, Virginia. As I said, it's great to have you here. Mandangul. Thank you. Annegret has already talked a little about the themes that emerged from our discussions on wellbeing last year. There were a range of, of issues that we, we worked through around the importance of seeing the social and environmental consequences of policy development, where economics may have been the primary driver previously, but where we need different types of solutions. There were three elements that we talked about in detail, economic, society and environment. And we talked about the way in which we can bring these things together to think beyond a primarily economics-focused agenda. But there are some questions around whether this is too simplistic. In your writing and discussions about the distinction between people and place, Virginia, you talk in ways that are really profound. You talk about um, using water um, it's just one example about the way we can use water to better help us understand the First Nations view of environmental issues and assets. Um, and we want to pursue some of those issues in, in much more detail. But I wonder if we could begin by thinking about country and well-being. And let's begin at the beginning in this conversation. We hear the word country used so often. But can you tell us what country is and why it's so significant for Indigenous Australians? Well, country is significant because it, it really deals with the issues that you've been exploring last year, which is healing. And Marangijal uh, in Wiradjuri is healing. So healing of the soul, healing of the of the person, the, the group, um, the healing of those relationships uh, with um, everything that's living and not living, um, tangible, intangible, uh, that's the essence of an Aboriginal person's relationship to everything in this beautiful nation. Um, so country and the idea of country, which is with a, a capital C, by the way, um, because it's really important. Uh, and it also means country is where we're from, our identity, um, again, our relationship, our deep relationship with everything living. Uh, and we consider rocks living 
um, just to add that, you know, I think that that's what we've got to understand, that where we come from and where we're connected to father's country, mother's country, grandmother's country, grandfather's country and beyond, uh, that we have those connections and that with those connections come obligations and the obligations and then the duties uh, but also when we don't fulfil those obligations, and that can be a, as a result of national policy because it separates us from the water, for example. Uh, the national policy also deals with taking of resources, um, and I won't say natural resources because nature or natural is very antithetical um, to Indigenous thinking. Can so. you flesh that out a little bit for me? Because we do, I know this is part of the framing that we discussed last year, was this separation between people and environment. And I, I think you frame it differently. That's right. So when most people talk about nature, um, it, it, it is in one corner of the room and we're on the other side of the room, yep. right? And and I think that's what happens too when we talk about natural resources. We actually then um, really neutralise it. Uh, where it has no being, it has no source, it has no creation story. So that's really important that we understand that when we talk about nature uh, or wilderness, for example, we're actually uh, taking an Aboriginal person away um, from their mother or their father or their grandfather or their grandmother um, and country, you know, where our spirits revived. So, you know, when we're talking about nature, it's not good thinking and it's also not good positioning. It means that we really need to talk about country. Caring for country um, was also a grant program many years ago and using those words because it wasn't just being uh, um, driven by an economic development. It wasn't being driven by any other purposes other than making sure that Aboriginal people uh, could exercise those obligations. And that's also supported in international law by the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, for example, and many other conventions for children and um, and also Universal Declaration of Rights. So, you know, that's reinforced today. But the whole idea of caring for country is 80,000 years and beyond in age. So we, we're one of the oldest living cultures in this planet and and that's been reinforced when I was at the United Nations uh, preparatory uh, meeting in Mexico in 2019. And I sat with a lot of other Indigenous peoples from Bolivia, Colombia, Canada, US, etc. And there wasn't any um, challenge to what I'd said because I was asked to say that by some of our Māori um, uh, delegates. So, you know, people do recognise our place in this planet, but uh, in Australia we are just a minor interest. Uh, we're treated as a lesser stakeholder um, or one not at all. So it's very strange to come back to Australia after that meeting and then find out that, you know, we really have to live with a position that's put upon us um, where our knowledge is not um, credited with um, the uh, good land management and good water management and also the healthy relationships. Um, every Indigenous culture in this world has been impacted by colonisation in some way and what we see is symptomatically we see those behaviours, whether it's in a criminal setting, um, with, with poverty, we're seeing those behaviours that are a result of colonisation. 
Um, because if you're a, a healthy person, if you have healing, manangijal, um, then, you know, you're a centred person. And that really makes a difference on how you care for country. But not also that, but also your relationship, your your intimate relationship with everything that's living on this country. So that's a very different perspective than saying this is nature, which many proponents for the rights of nature actually talk about excising uh, a mountain or a national park, for example, or a river like the Whanganui in New Zealand, excising it because of bad policy and laws. Um, that is antithetical to Aboriginal thinking. Can you tease that out a little bit more as well, please, Virginia? Because I've I've read some really interesting thing that, things that you've written um, where you've challenged the the idea of the rights of nature and said this is not the way that we should be going. We should be thinking about this differently. And I think in places you've described that concept of the rights of nature as another colonial tool that's going to come between Indigenous Australians, First Nations people here in Australia and country. Can you just explain to us what that 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 idea of the rights of nature means and why it is so antithetical to the idea of country? Well, it's good because in one way I didn't sort of just jump out of bed and go, this is really terrible, this won't work. It was years of talking at conferences, writing, thinking, being on international conferences, for example, where I was the only person that challenged the rights of nature and everybody was supportive of it. Um, that was interesting. And I think my coming book is going to be on the rights of nature as well. Um, so that's a, an Indigenous perspective that I want to actually um, really get deeply and, and think deeply about. But what it is is the rights of nature is really uh, a movement that began in about the 60s or 70s. And at the time, I, I guess people were looking for a philosophy that actually brought people back to nature, not to country, uh, and that would also ensure that bad policies and bad laws um, that were being perpetrated on uh, the environment would then uh, take the next step to actually excise that tree or that mountain or that river and uh, allow it to be uh, uh, having its own legal standing, uh, legal personhood, that it would in, in part be an entity like a company, for example. Um, but with that, again, and the revival of the rights of nature, it means that it's been driven around a lot of places such as South America in some ordinances, some rules in, a, in some places of America, um, in the Fanganui River uh, and also in the National Park in um, Aotearoa. And one of my examiners, uh, Dr Jacinta Ruru, um, who was also working on that negotiation for the Fanganui River, uh, was one of my examiners for my PhD. So we we really understand each other. And the whole idea in talking with her was it was a compromise position because the Crown didn't want to give away their ownership of the land and waters um, and that means a submerged um, uh, land under the water. And then also the Māori people insisted that that was theirs to look after um, in their obligations and whatnot. So there was a compromise that then resulted in the Whanganui River. And compromise maybe uh, was something that they talked about 
um, as iwi, that that was a, a good conclusion. But remember, and this is one thing I brought up in the United Nations preparatory meeting in Mexico, was that we're more than a thousand years old here. Our culture, our um, established relationships, the knowledge of the land, the understanding of the indicators uh, of the environment, etc. So we have a very long relationship with this country. And with the rights of nature, it, it is a Western tool. Um, instead of, and I've made this point, that the rights of nature movement should be supporting Indigenous peoples, Aboriginal people of Australia, to actually um, be supported. Um, and that is where we need to go with the rights of nature. We don't need to have another tool to actually um, separate us again from our responsibilities to country. And that's the problem that I have with the rights of nature. It seems to be a default position for people who really don't want to advocate or protest like we did um, in the 70s and the 80s to say about Aboriginal rights, land rights, etc. cetera. Um, when we talked about land rights, we often weren't um, heard when we, we meant land and water and everything else. So, you know, that's the problem with the rights of nature. And I've set that out very clearly in a legal argument and Indigenous perspectives on that argument. So that's what I'm saying, you know, let's fix the laws and the policies that we have that don't work. And there's lots of them. There's a whole list of them for Aboriginal peoples here in Australia, instead of then going back and just taking a tool out of the Western toolbox. Uh, it won't work. It shouldn't work. Uh, and if other people in other countries want to pursue that, that's fine. But it won't work for the oldest um, civilization in the world. I was really struck by I was struck by many things she said then, Virginia. But one of the things that struck me was you said that if we think along those lines of the rights of nature, a tree or a river or a cave um, becomes like a corporation, and. I was just thinking that through. And one of the things that we talked a lot about um, in our discuss discussions last year around well-being and a well-being economy was the way in which we have fallen into this trap of making everything for profit, of monetizing everything. And I wonder if we start to think of trees, of rivers, of caves, of, of country in that way that we do then start to make those trade-offs about value, but value only in terms of money or profit rather than value in terms of meaning and well-being and That's you know, right. sort of a deeper sense. That's right. And and we excise that whole um, issue of, of our, our togetherness. You know, we, we can't be part of this land if we don't see it as a relationship and duties and responsibilities. Um, and we have that. Even if we have a quarter acre block and we go, well, you know, what was there before? There might be artifacts on that quarter acre block that you've inherited or you've bought. There might have been a massacre on that particular land. I, I've, I've gone into the Riverina areas where um, Aboriginal peoples won't go to a particular government building. Um, government have known the history of that particular area um, because it was a massacre site for example. So we had nobody attend from the land council for that very reason. Uh, there are lots of sites around Canberra, um, around the state, around uh, Tasmania, for example. You know, there's so much that needs to be healed and it's right under your feet. Like this campus, for example, at ANU needs healing. So 
we're talking about a really truth-telling experience that we understand where we're living, what we're living on, what spiritual inheritance we've really um, got beneath our feet. Uh, that's something we really need to understand. And and I think what I clearly can express that in is when I was with Eugene Bargo up in Brisbane, he came down and visited as a, as a visiting scholar, a traditional um, gareng-gareng man, uh, cubby-cubby. So it was very clear that when we were taken around Boundary Street in Brisbane that he pointed to a place where a tree was and the post office is there now, that Aboriginal people were hung from that spot. Now, people walk past that every day. That's a tragic situation. So we really need truth-telling, where we're living, what we're living on, what happened in these particular sites, were there massacres, were there artefacts. Um, that's a really deep conversation that we need to have, and I'm, I'm sure people don't think about that, you know, and they don't think about what they've inherited um, because of those colonial events and that they keep on coming where more abuse is perpetrated, for example. We've seen that Royal Commission in Child Sexual Abuse. So there's buildings that have that spirit. Uh, there's there's a whole heap of uh, stories that are real and connect to people and connect to pain. And I think that's what we're talking about, well-being. That's a huge responsibility, but people need to be aware of that. It's an extraordinarily powerful uh, argument, and I, I think you've enunciated it so beautifully. I think it makes sense for many of us, at least on an emotional basis, that we are connected to country, and that and we all of us um, understand that the world that we live on cannot be separated from our health and well-being. And certainly, that's a, an important point. Water is one of your extraordinary strengths in terms of the legal framework. And I wonder if you might take us through some of the issues around water policy and Indigenous uh, indigenous knowledge and Indigenous ownership. Um, what sort of issues have you come across in the work that you've done? Well, I guess it was prompted uh, many years ago. I, I was sharing with Sharon too that I was 16 when I left high school, so I certainly didn't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now as, a, as an academic or as a scholar. So um, looking at water, it was in the millennium drought um, John Howard was in government and I was reading uh, uh, many, many things, as you do. I, I was lucky to get a scholarship and what really um, hit me in the face was that all of the newspapers, um, all of the media in Australia during that time, 2005, that there wasn't a mention of Indigenous people, nothing. There wasn't any rights discussion. There wasn't any property. There, when the water was separated from the land, there wasn't any discussion about how Aboriginal people should be consulted, um, what water meant to them, you know, what cultural water meant, what a livelihood from water meant. Um, and the system was completely broken down for Indigenous people through uh, the changes of the National Water Initiative and uh, also the setup of the National Water Commission. And uh, the Water Commission didn't have an Indigenous component. Um, there weren't Indigenous commissioners. And uh, Aboriginal people were just thrown along for the ride. In the National Water Initiative, as I noticed, there was three clauses, and those were very inappropriate passive languages that they used, of course. And it was just in accounting for uh, native title, 
and water sharing plans. That was it. So there was no other connection to water that the government saw that they wanted to have Aboriginal peoples represented by. So that cut Aboriginal people out in this country of that conversation. Uh, it cut them out of the access to cultural water, cultural activities. Um, and again, it cut them out of caring for country uh, because all of those conversions of rights and licences that existed when water was with the land were suddenly rights with monetary value. Um, irrigators, of course, and farmers then um, had a mozza. Uh, instead of water being uh, very little, um, in, in, in people weren't charged for water in, in other places across Australia, it meant that now it was a commodity. And that has driven the conversation that I've been involved in round tables. I'm on several at the moment and I'm co-chair for the Aboriginal Water Committee um, for the nation. And I think that, you know, now I can see that we're still being cut out. Um, we're still being ignored as very um, important uh, in our relationships with caring for country. Um, it's, it's basically a, a talk of what's left. So instead of um, really listening to compromises on the other side on what they're willing to forgo or share, uh, we've seen the examples with environmental water holding um, in that uh, in the environment is given really um, a second uh, place to uh, other water use, which is commodified water. So I think that that's the problem that I see is that that healing can't take place unless we revisit uh, the place where we were actually cut out from this conversation and this relationship. And we need to deal with truth-telling on that issue. Um, and again, like the stolen generations and uh, the, the many conversations that we've had with child sexual abuse and poverty, we need that truth-telling. And in water, there doesn't seem to be that particular first step. And I think that when Aboriginal people really can't um, conduct and be a part of that cultural water and have that dedicated flow, it means uh, it impacts like many of the situations that we've seen across Australia where the Darling River, where the, the fish died, they weren't just fish, they were an obligation to actually care for those fish, the native fish. There was an obligation to care for the barker for example, the Darling River, uh, and all the other rivers and creeks across this country. So all of that just stood still. Uh, but the conversation seems to go to what flow, um, you know, how much water costs. You know, there's even water futures now where you can actually bet on water. So, you know, we're actually just separating ourselves even more away from caring for country as a nation. Um, but Aboriginal peoples basically then are relegated to that minority group instead of rising up and being celebrated with the knowledge, the understanding of water, the deep history and the connection of water. You know, as a mum uh, of four children, you know, water is so important. It's part and parcel of, of, of really having those children um, and that experience of, of what you actually give life to crea is created in water. So we really have to understand that we've got a lot to lose as a nation unless we're truth-telling in that area of water. There's so much more. Virginia, I think um, we really need to have more of a conversation about that truth-telling of what we need to go back to 
and what steps we need to take going forward. Uh, We're going to take a short break now. So listeners, stay with us because we will come back in just a minute um, and talk through some of those pathways forward. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Virginia Marshall, and we're talking about the meaning of country, um, the meaning of what we often refer to as natural resources of rivers, of caves, of trees. And I think for those of you who, who have been on this journey over the last half an hour or so with Virginia, you, like me, probably starting to think very differently about how we talk about and think about country and we move away from from that language of natural resources. But Virginia, I, I wanted to take us back to the conversation that we were having where you talked about the early national water initiatives, the way in which Indigenous people were cut out of those conversations, and you said that water became a commodity. And you made the point that Indigenous people are still being cut out of those conversations. There's no room for First Nations people in Australia to care for country and to fulfil those obligations. What first steps do we need to take right now to start to shift that? What do we begin need to begin doing to change the discourse, to, to, to change the kinds of conversations that we're having so that we learn from Indigenous people about the value of country, about the way we can begin to think differently and ultimately behave differently um, and take different policy decisions. So where do we start? Well, I think the most important thing, and we'll carry on from where we actually started, was talking about truth-telling. And I think that that's really important. And we know that that happened in South Africa for many reasons to do with the historic conditions uh, of what... Uh, people went through, um, especially black South Africans and people who supported, uh, who weren't black, you know, they also ended up, um, being, uh, tortured and, and driven out of their homes. So, you know, that was something that I think that's really important to, to take hold of. In Canada, it was truth telling because of the abuse in the residential homes, for example. Um, you know, even Kevin Rudd's apology was really deeply moving. Um, there wasn't much to actually come after that, but I can tell you that um, many people in victim statements, for example, in the courts where they can actually tell exactly the impact of a person's um, crime to the family, 
uh, to the loss of loved ones, that's very powerful. And we need um, that incredibly powerful event uh, of, of being humble and saying, look, we got it wrong. You know, uh, even today coming here, I was listening to uh, a national radio broadcaster and there were many Indigenous issues that were talked about but no Indigenous content, no Indigenous perspective, no Indigenous person was talking about these issues and that's really depressing. Um, it really, um, it, it really stops the healing, the Marangijal. It, it stops that feeling of being able to listen to one's truth, but it also means that it stops the healing when those lies are perpetuated. And when people really don't come to the table, whether it's irrigators, farmers, people on the land that have inherited properties through land grants, um, the land that wasn't uh, actually the government's to give. Um, we haven't ceded uh, this country as Aboriginal peoples. So, you know, many people have received um, stolen goods, for example. It's, it's stolen land. So we need to, and everybody, you know, uh, um, many Aboriginal people are living on stolen land as well if they're not on country as traditional owners. So we have a huge responsibility to really speak honestly about that. But we need to actually move forward on seeing those bad policies and laws of the past, which are only um, less than 20 years old. Uh, you know, that's not 1788. So we need to actually turn this around. Uh, and I've been to those round tables where, uh, in the past, whether there are different issues other than water, that it takes a compromise right there and then. We have to be willing to share. We have to be willing to say, okay, I might have, um, you know, this much water, but I'm actually prepared to give this back to actually allow Aboriginal people to have those flows. Because we know with climate change, the IPCC reports on desertification, the impact of global warming. Um, there's one issue that I'm very passionate about is climate change because it's really linked, and I know Anna Greta is too, uh, it's really linked to what we'll become. Now, if we have no water, and I've, I've said this many times in my book, if we have no water, we die. That's simply that. You know, everything that you pick up, a drink that you go into a shop to get, it, it's got water in it. Um, you boil a cup of tea, it's got water. Um, if you're going to uh, clean a wound, you use water. You know, so we have to really be conscious that it's not going to continue the way it is today. We really are in a serious um, predicament. And if we don't really take on the Indigenous knowledge and perspectives and the understanding with a humble uh, heart, it means that we're not going to really travel well in the future. And we've seen what COVID has dished out to us. I believe it's going to be much more challenging in the future because we really don't want to commit to climate change. Uh, we don't see net emissions uh, and the responsibility that Australia participates in as an important first step. We just see it for other countries to take part. Um, and then maybe we'll actually follow later on in, you know, 2080 or whatnot. So we've really got to see that global warning and warming and also um, the changes in Australia. It's also a very arid country. But in the deforestation uh, and the erosion and the changes for urbanisation, um, we, we're really creating a planet that we won't be able to live on in the future. And we've what? already said that in, in Penrith, 48 degrees. Um, how are people going to live 
uh, in places where Aboriginal people were living in over 40 degrees in a tin shed, in a corrugated piece of iron I've seen in the Kimberley. Uh, and you wouldn't even put horses in those corrugated sheds or lean-tos. That's what we're going to experience in the future. Without really being conscious of these changes and really making sure that our governments advocate for these um, systems to change, uh, we're going to have systemic failure. And it's not only in our souls that, that we're going to have these troubles, but it's also really in preparing ourselves for what's to come. That's what I'm very seriously concerned about. I'm going to come back to that beginning conversation about this very artificial distinction between people and place. And I think we have so much to learn from that if we recognise that our human health is integrally connected to that of the environment around us, the physical environment around us, to our care or otherwise of nature, then then the attention that we pay to climate change changes significantly. Absolutely. Um, because we really do. We need to value the assets around us, the trees, the natural mm. environment, the water resources That's in a right. different way. And it strikes me that the wellbeing economics model of taking into consideration a balance of society and economics and environment, that in fact there's a whole richness that you add through an Indigenous perspective and it's in, very nicely encapsulated through caring from country. Um, and I'm so grateful for the time you've spent explaining that to us today. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about shared decision-making. Last year, the National Agreement on Closing the Gap emphasised the importance of shared decision-making between governments and Indigenous Australians, particularly in relation to health and to wellbeing. Do you think this sort of model will work in other policy areas, like in water or in climate change or in environmental issues more broadly? Well, I think that the shared decision-making is only at its infancy stage at the moment. And it will challenge a lot of uh, government representatives and also jurisdictions to really share because we're not seeing that in cultural heritage legislation such as Duke and Gorge. Uh, we're not seeing sharing and caring uh, and native title is not a sharing and caring space really. No. So um, just to say that I think it's really important that we need to um, be welcoming those small uh, steps forward but again it, it takes um, a person of integrity, a country of integrity to start at the beginning, which is the beginning history uh, of European invasion of this place. And it, it doesn't mean that Aboriginal people, when they bring that issue up, that we don't celebrate Australia Day or we don't want to participate because um, we're not proud Australians. I mean, black diggers fought for this country in the Boer War. They fought in World War One. They fought in World War II and many other wars in Afghanistan, for example, and Timor, they, they had service. So, you know, we have a proud country of service men and women, but we also have um, a position in Australia where we still see Aboriginal people as children. You know, we, we might give you this responsibility. Uh, you know, are, are you able to actually carry these things out by yourself? You know, what sort of help do you need? Um, there are a lot of barristers, there's doctors, um, there's academics, there's scholars, there pe there's people now in leadership that, um, you know, it's just an amazing collection of people, people who are strong people on country that have lived through those station days in their 80s and, and they're still going strong with, you know, a, an incredible zest for sharing with others. But I think that what we need to, to really see in this space and, and there's 
every law and policy in this country needs to have uh, a view of um, the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, international laws and principles such as that, that need to be put into legislation to give legal effect. Now, the problem that they had with Bill 41 in BC Canada is they, yes, they welcomed UNDRIP into legislation, but it isn't with its full powers to actually um, act and exercise those powers for the benefit of, of Aboriginal peoples. Um, it's the same as the, the national recognition and constitutional recognition across the jurisdictions in Australia, Tasmania, for example, have a recognition, but it says non-legal effect. So we don't have anything that flows from that to Aboriginal people. It's like saying, well, you've won the lottery, but you don't get to get the cash, right? That's just an analogy that people will, will get. So I think that that's where we need to start. We need to stop treating Aboriginal people like children, um, that we need to have um, the, the developed relationships that Aboriginal people will automatically be at the table. Um, there will be people representative of all of those issues, whether it's water, whether it's health. If you're actually um, going into a round table and there are not sufficient uh, Aboriginal peoples at that round table, I would say you should walk out. Um, if you're going to a health meeting and they're not substantial Aboriginal people sitting around the table, you should walk out because we can't tolerate those um, uh, exercises anymore. And, and I think that that's where we're coming from. So, yes, it's important. Um, UNDRIP spells out self-determination, but we don't see that happening in practical terms. Uh, we, we see that there's many other articles in the, in the UNDRIP that give Aboriginal peoples health, a responsibility of health and self-governance and uh, governing their institutions and to ensure that their uh, culture can be revitalised, for example, for people like the Noongar people in um, Perth, for example, uh, that were displaced. Uh, and those 14 clans really had um, incredibly um, survived all of those um, attempts by colonisation um, to take everything away from them. So I think that that's where I want to see that shared decision-making that's matured. I think that's the key word, that we we really do legislate and have legal effect with UNDRIP uh, and we need to have a, a really good look at the Universal Periodic Review uh, on the um, the particular recommendations that we've put up and I know with the Indigenous Peoples Organisation that I, I advocate and I'm an executive board member of, um, I think that we work very um, well uh, in such an incredible um, small group and we're compromised by a lot of conflicting responsibilities, but we really do um, believe that those recommendations need to be taken up by the government instead of the response by governments to have a smooth talk and say, look, everything's not going too badly, um, and then deflect. I think that we really need to make sure that governments um, really understand their role and responsibility going forward because they do need us. You know, with the bushfires, for example, we, it was critical down here. You I was going to ask you about that, whether yeah. the you know, cultural burning has changed, do you think, Australia's understanding of how important uh, a role we can we can have from Indigenous understanding of land yeah. If, yeah. We, you know, if we just begin to appreciate perhaps that's the tip of the iceberg um, and that if understanding fire management techniques um, may open that door to a much better understanding of the country. Do you think we can have that optimism? Well, well I think after 
the Royal Commission into Disasters and the chapter that they had for bushfires, I think that was really an important conversation. And, and I remember walking into, um, into town here and it was like a, a movie. It was like an American um, disaster movie. Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Yep. And uh, it was just dreadful. And I actually felt uh, like I was living and acting in that role. And it was just really um, traumatic. Now, when we think of that and then suddenly on the media they were talking about cool burning. Now, we've been doing that for tens of thousands of years. But, again, it took a, an absolute tragedy a tragedy of people losing their homes, Aboriginal people too, um, losing their loved ones. And that is what we've looked at to say there's another way. Aboriginal people have that incredible knowledge. We need to listen. Now, I'm hopeful that what we'll do is embrace Aboriginal people with that knowledge and revitalise that knowledge across the country amongst Aboriginal people. And that will be a point of sharing. Mm. Um, and and, and sharing in dignity and respect and integrity. Mm. I think that's what we need. We don't want to do what we've always done in this country and many other colonised countries too, not just Australia, that they've just gone, oh, we'll take that, thanks very much, and then walk off with it. Um, and we've seen the knowledge of medicines and bush foods. Um, that's another area that I work in as a lawyer in, in uh, protecting Aboriginal knowledge and, and Aboriginal medicines, that I can see that there's countries out there that really want to take hold and develop Aboriginal medicines but without Aboriginal people. Mm. They want to commodify it. And that is a very, very alarming because that's taking our identity as well and our responsibility and our caring for country because those medicines are not medicines standing outside. They're medicines in the picture of caring for country. So that's what we've got to remember. So when that's taken from Aboriginal people, all those bush foods, we're actually taking people's identity and people's right to care for country. Virginia, we're hearing quite a lot at the moment about a voice to parliament. Um, there's still a great deal of opposition in many quarters to that, but the, the conversation uh, at least seems to be gaining some momentum. Would Australia be able to tackle some of these policy issues and some of these really fundamentally deep scars that we have, um, if we had a voice to parliament, is that one of the first things we need to do? Yeah, oh, look, there's lots of other strategies. And I think our, our senior elders too have a really good idea about what they are. And, and I think we need to consult much more widely. And I think that's the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It actually had um, delegates come supported by the communities to go. Of course, not everybody could go. It's impossible. Um, and many of the senior people wouldn't have been able to travel uh, at that particular time. But that was a good idea about how we should go forward uh, in humanity. And then I think the other thing is that we need to remember that with those issues, with uh, a voice, um, many of those um, government um, monitored appointments uh, are also set up for failure. It has to be elected by Indigenous people. And that's what we did with ATSIC. We elected our representatives. Now, we have to elect our representatives. I was elected by um, the Indigenous members of uh, the Water Committee uh, nationally, and I feel very honoured for that, but it wasn't a government appointment. So I think that that's what we need to do with The Voice. It's a 200-page report. It, it has flowed on from the expert 
uh, reports and consultations across the country into what that constitutional recognition should have been. I still believe it should be constitutional. Um, we need change and we need people to, to really um, open their eyes that that's what other countries have done as well. Uh, and also we need to look at this particular um, model with uh, the greatest of scrutiny. Um, I've had uh, a look through that 200-page report and I'm not convinced that that's the way to go. Uh, I think we need to uh, really consult more widely and meaningfully with the Aboriginal communities. Uh, I think that was the failure with the um, National Bill of Rights conversation many years ago. I was with the Human Rights um, Committee with the Law Society. I think what we um, struggled to understand is it's not just getting words in provisions and putting it together and it's going to work by some sort of magic. Um, it really takes the nation to get behind a Bill of Rights or the voice um, that's really inspired and informed by Aboriginal people across this country. I think unless that happens, um, it's always going to be said by Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people across this land that it was just government pointed. And we're getting the, the cheap model. We're getting the, the $2 shop model. We're not getting the best model. We're not getting the opportunities to really directly give good policy to government and good policy advice and be heard. I think that's the problem with those issues. Again, as Anna Greto said about shared decision-making, it puts us as the children in the room, not the adults. And UNDRIP, of course, is completely sidelined. It's a it's a, a balance that needs to shift. I think it's there's a global um, movement in this direction. It's important as we want to contend with the other issues such as climate change. I think these things are all deeply interconnected. Virginia, thank you for your conversation today. It's been so informative and uh, your generosity in sharing these ideas with us is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for joining us on our first episode for 2021. Thank you. Great honour. Mandangu, everyone. Sharon, that was an amazing conversation with Virginia. Uh, I learned quite a lot from that. I, every time I speak with her, I learn more. Um, and I know, I, I feel like as we contend with some of these extraordinary challenges for Australia at the moment, as we uh, continue to contend with the coronavirus pandemic and the economic recovery, as we contend with the ongoing problem, uh, problems of climate change and our economic challenges around that, uh, that we have so much to learn from our Indigenous peoples uh, and that her generosity in sharing uh, some of this conceptual framework with us uh, is so greatly appreciated. For me, that core connection between people and, and country, people and place, uh, is a really important one. It's important for me in my work as a doctor. It's important in my thinking about climate change and how we can contend with that at a community level, at a local level, at a global level. Um, and I, I just feel like we could learn a, a tremendous amount by using this framework more regularly. How about you? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that was just the perfect conversation. To continue on from the conversations that we were having last year as part of the series about the wellbeing economy and just thinking differently, but also to start our thinking this year. Um, and I agree with you about that connection between people and place and the way Virginia framed that. And I think that speaks to us when we really genuinely listen to that conversation. 
I, I know it speaks to me. I mean, I'm not an Indigenous Australian, but when I go back to my home in Tasmania, I feel that connection to place. And I think a lot of us do have that sense, not in the way Indigenous people do, but in a way that allows us, if we open ourselves to that idea, to actually understand what that means. So I think there's just so much for us to take from that. And, you know, Anna Greta, the other thing that really struck me as Virginia was talking was we so often see these things as zero-sum games, as, as somehow opposed to one another. You know, we we think we see that in some of the conversations about how we deal with COVID nineteen. Is it about health? Is it about the economy? You know, we yep. we separate those things out. Um, when we think about the place of Indigenous people in Australia, I do think there's often this sense that if we open up that conversation, it somehow undermines the place of everyone else. And what Virginia kept saying were words like compromise words like sharing and words like caring. And I think if we can start to reframe, so we move away from that zero-sum game and we move away from those kinds of debates in our policymaking to thinking about compromise, to thinking then from compromise to sharing and how we use caring as a basis for that, I think we start to get towards some of those things we were talking about last year mm. in well terms no, of well Absolutely, yeah. No, the tension between commodification and the environment um, you know, the the example I think that's still very much in the minds of many of us is the Black Summer um, and how we can really change the relationship we have with environment by allowing that Indigenous voice to be louder and an Indigenous understanding of knowledge of country um, and of the environment to be, to be a more dominant force in how we contend with the changing climate. It will protect all of us. Um, and so I really hope we can continue with this conversation over the course of the year. And, uh, you know, I think we see this as a global conversation. I think it's a emerging um, in an interesting way with the new Biden administration in the United States as they talk about the importance of tackling systemic racism in the same way that they're going to tackle the climate change catastrophe that's evolving. Um, and so I, I think this will be a dominant theme for us over the course of 2021. I am very excited about what we're going to do on the pod, the conversations that we're going to have over this year. Um, I'm really excited to be talking to you again, Anna Greta. I missed our conversations over <laughs> likewise, summer. Likewise, likewise. It's great. I hope our listeners did too. Um, so, listeners, this is a journey that we're going to take over the rest of this year, you know, trying to think differently about some of those really important, really fundamental issues that the world needs to, to grapple with in the context of climate change, of pandemic. I mean, it, it doesn't get much worse. But we are going to bring some rays of light mm. in terms of the kinds of resolutions to some of these problems. Absolutely. So new thinking and new ideas that are emerging both here at ANU and around the country and around the world in terms of these difficult policy spaces. Uh, it is the time for solutions. This decade is no doubt is the time for solutions. We need some new ideas and some new thinking. And we're very much looking forward to bringing some great ideas through this platform. So listeners, reach out to us. Um, share your ideas with us. We really want to hear from you. You can contact us through Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or uh, the old-fashioned way through email, podcast at policyforum.net. Probably the best way to join us if you are a Facebook user, which I must confess I'm not, is through our Facebook group. If you just put Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you'll find us there. And don't forget to leave us a review. We really love reading those reviews. 
You can also subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts from, Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere that you normally listen to your podcasts. So we will be back next week with another episode. Anna Greta, a little bit of a sneak peek at what we're going to be talking about next week. I feel like we've just begun to touch on some of these ideas around Indigenous knowledge. Uh, Certainly it's an area that I I can only learn more in um, and I'd be really enthusiastic to continue this conversation. Does that sound okay to you, Sharon? That sounds absolutely perfect to me. I think we're just at the beginning here. Excellent. I'll look forward to next week. We hope to see you all then. Thanks for listening. So from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. And bye-bye from me, Anna Greta Hunter.